Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I am here, as usual, with Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. I'm sitting in New York. Emma is in Greece, thereby making this yet another cross-cultural, internet-enabled, global discussion. And the person we're about to speak with is in Vancouver. I have yet to, to get over just the extreme wonder and oddity of the ability to have these conversations simultaneously across multiple time zones throughout the world. A, a, a situation that's clearly going to continue and increase, not just enabled by the weirdness of COVID, but by the extraordinary power of all these technologies. And today we're going to speak with someone who has a unique background as a creative type who created a company that has led to a I don't know, Emma, would you say a process of how to think about oneself and one's organizations productively and collectively going into the future? Yeah, I think that does a good job. So we're going to speak today with Yancey Strickler, and Emma will, will give us the introduction in a moment. But what's fascinating about Yancey is not just the company he created, Kickstarter, which many of you are probably familiar with, uh, but the kind of the lessons gleaned and and the work that he's now doing, which is very much in sync with Progress Network, what could go right ideas. You know, the point of these discussions and the point of this series is to have engaging discussions with serious people about serious things, but hopefully in not too serious a fashion. You know, we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously even when we're talking about deep thoughts. Yancey, I think, has the uh, the awareness, the eyes wide open humility about how do we create change and it's not going to be this instant and it's not going to be tonight and it won't be tomorrow morning uh, and that it's a process and you kind of want it to be a process as, as I think you'll hear. So tell us about Yancey. So Yancey Strickler is an author and an entrepreneur and as you mentioned Zachary, you guys might know him as the co-founder of Kickstarter. He's also the co-founder of the Artist Resource, the Creative Independent, and the founder of the Bento Society, which we're going to be hearing about very soon. And he's also the author of This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. We all want a more generous world. And hey, a manifesto for one, that is even better. So let's speak with Yancey. So Yancey Strickler, it's great to have you today to be a part of these conversations about who are we and what are we and why are we and where are we going and where do we head from here and you've been nicely at the the epicenter of creativity to try to turn the sentiments of how do we create a more constructive culture from idle thoughts uh, or conversations over a dinner table to something more actionable uh, and more practicable. So for those who do not know about the wonderful world of bento and bentoism, not to be confused with Shinto and Shintoism, maybe you can tell us a little bit about this thing you created, having created Kickstarter, having been an entrepreneur, having created you know more specific organizations. Where did this come from? Yeah, well, um, you know, th thanks, thanks for having me and feel free to confuse Bentoism and Shintoism that increases our membership considerably. Um, 
you know, the bento is a, it's a framework, it's a mental model, it's a tool um, that really did come out of my experience as an entrepreneur and as a CEO, being the co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter. Um, you know, I, I, I was always striving to create some kind of a compass to where everyone in the organization could be empowered and emboldened to act on the mission and to, you know, limit the need for permission and, and to just sort of create like a, uh, just like a post-permission organization. And I tried a lot of different ways to express that. And, you know, how is it that you can sort of allow people to make decisions according to the same logic? Um, and I never quite got there. And I spent a, about a year after I stepped down as the CEO of Kickstarter, like reading and, and thinking about a lot of questions related to my experience. And one of them was thinking about this notion of, of self-interest, how it is that we believe what is right for us to do and what's wrong for us to do. And what is the history of that idea? And one day while thinking about this, I, I sketched in my notebook uh, uh, what I, how I thought we saw self-interest today, which is a, a form very familiar to me from Kickstarter, which is a hockey stick graph, you know, a chart where whatever is you want, the line is sloping up and to the right. And this is like our ultimate emblem of making it a success of like fulfilling yourself in the world today. And when I drew that uh, simple um, that simple chart, I, I just had this insight that, you know, that the x-axis measuring time, it actually keeps going far beyond where this line is going up. And the y-axis measuring our self-interest, I actually think that keeps going too, especially because as our self-interest grows, so do our responsibilities. You know, the difference between being single and having a family is huge or being an employee or versus being a manager. And so I extended the lines on this graph and suddenly this hockey stick graph now is this big open space where I drew these four boxes, the simple two by two uh, that became the bento. And those four boxes are in the bottom left, now me, what I as an individual want and need right now. This is how the world sees self-interest today. In the bottom right, there's future me, what my future self, the wise person I hope I become, what that person wants me to do. You know, that person becomes real or not based on any decision I make in a given moment. In the top left box, there's the space of now us, the people in my life who are important to me and know I'm important to them. My choices affect them, just they affect me. And the top right, the space of future us, think about the next generation. And as I like expanded this hockey stick graph into these four dimensions, I felt like I was, I was suddenly seeing like my true self-interest. You know, it wasn't just about what's happening right now, but that's a part of it, but there's all these other dimensions and considerations. And I like sketched this in my notebook and just wrote next to it a very simple description beyond near-term orientation. That was just what this was a two-by-two two graph of, how to see beyond a near-term orientation. And I realized that that description made an acronym spelled BENTO. And I thought, oh, this is, this is a BENTO box. You know, four compartments, a balanced meal, very convenient. And I, and I know that BENTO also honors a Japanese dieting philosophy, Harahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So this bento idea just sort of appeared one day uh, after thinking about this question for years about how do you create a compass that allows you to make consistent decisions towards a, towards a direction. And what I realized in drawing this was that this was what I had been looking for at Kickstarter. This is what I actually needed in my own life to compensate for a lot of areas where I fall short of who I want to be. And it just felt true to me. And so that, you know, has, has started a journey that, you know, this is almost three years ago to this day is when that happened. And now there's thousands of people all around the world who use this tool on a daily basis. And, you know, they similarly have just found uh, it to be useful. I've done one of the Bento workshops with you, Yancey, as a, as a personal tool. And that was really, that was really interesting for me. I was surprised at the clarity that that doing one of the the bentos um, gave to me. But you know, it's sort of it's a tool and a framework that accomplishes a lot of things at once. It gets you onto the long term thinking page. You can use it as an individual, but there's also this sense of like like you're saying a compass and moving us toward a certain direction on the collective level. So if we're using the bento on a collective level, what's that page we're all trying to get onto? Like where are we moving toward? Well, I mean, I feel like that 
the answer to that is politics in a way that is like a, the meta competition. Um, but I think that this allows any group of people to create and to declare a shared future. So um, there is a one way I talk about the bento is as the bento method as just like a, a like a very basic tool in your toolkit. Uh, but there are there are guides and instructions for say like a product team or a creative team or even people like doing something for a weekend where they can create a bento that reflects each of their individual desires as well as reflecting what it is they're there to do together. And so it's this notion, and I think it's very much at the heart of how organizations are evolving today. This this notion of allowing us to cooperate where we are showing up as individuals, but also willingly, uh, you know, dedicating ourselves to some larger cause and that both of those things need to be honored simultaneously. And so the bento is a way that it allows people to write their own stories about this is what I'm motivated by, this is what I'm here to do, but then to connect that to, well, the larger purpose we're here is to do this sort of product or this sort of cause. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a lot of a lot of research, a lot of thinking that says that you know, the intentions that we set really shape the outcomes of what we do. And I think in a lot of ways, the bento is just, it's, it's helping people and teams create like a more fixed destination. It might be a year from now, you know, they're just thinking about what is the next year and you're just having something written down that just tells you, Hey, in a moment of calm and reflection, this is what you said mattered. And as it, as an interface, it just lets you ask questions that really like check this against it, almost like a checklist. Is this in line with this or not? History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club. The group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Kickstarter has always been a bit of a different type of tech company, a different type of startup. You guys are about to take a next step. This is kind of a growing up for Kickstarter. Explain to me what that is. Yeah, well, Kickstarter is now a public benefit corporation. And what that means is that we've gone to some pretty extraordinary steps uh, to make it so that the need of profits and you know the, the financial responsibilities we have in a company are balanced equally with the impact we have on society. So it's trying to think about yourself as a company as being bigger than just you, bigger than your own self-interest. And so we join great organizations like Patagonia and This American Life that have taken this step, uh, and we're thrilled to announce it. And, and when you make this conversion to become a benefit corporation, uh, companies can choose to lay out specific commitments they're making as a part of doing this. And these are things that you will publicly report on, and basically you'll just be owned and be accountable. That was Yancey Strickler talking with CNN Money's Lori Siegel in 2015. So in your earlier, you know, before this, right, in your incarnation as a, a tech startup CEO and creating Kickstarter as one of the first iterations of crowdfunding, you know, the idea that we've got these incredible tools, the internet that allow people to find 
partners, you know, whether that's personal or professional, not intermediated by traditional forces that you had to go through to get funding or any number of things. I mean, the Kickstarter is kind of like the, the, the Uber of, uh, of, of crowdfunding. If I've got an idea and I need to find someone who's enthusiastic, but were you, you know, if you talk to yourself 10 years ago or 15 years ago, um, you, you talked about your now self and your future self. So if you, maybe we can add on the other part of the quadrant, the, the past self question, um, sure. the pre bento, the pre bento Yancey, would would this have seemed odd to you? I mean, were you animated by the same sort of belief in the the, the positive power of crowdfunding, or were you also much more just like um, ambitious, young? I want to make a mark. I want to make money. I want to do something. Not that those were incompatible. Um, I mean, neither. I'm a I'm a writer. You know, I was a music critic for my first ten years of my professional career, and I, I ran a record label, and I've always just been creatively motivated. Um, and so Kickstarter was a creative project for myself, Perry Chen and Charles Adler. And it was Perry that had first had the idea, but we were doing it not, you know, this was in 2005, this started, we were doing it not, not because we wanted to start a company. It was just like a really necessary idea that needed to be a company to exist. Um, so there was no startup culture to speak of. And we, you know, I often felt, uh, a strong sense of like, I was betraying something by being a creative person, starting a business. Like that felt like wasn't what I was supposed to do. And I was often felt like I was apologizing to my friends of like, you know, we're trying to do something cool. Um, but just very different from where, where I came from. But I think, you know, thinking about like my past self, you know, at, at Kickstarter, you know, I was always, I'm like very hungry to learn always. It's, it's, it's like a, a, just a very natural drive. And I, and I was always looking for models, ways, ways to improve my thinking. And I was really searching for something that clicked with how, you know, how, how I felt things and, and really, you know, didn't find that. And, and what, and what happened, what would happen instead was that in the organization uh, where you have a, you know, charismatic, strong founders and say, there's not much written down early on is that everyone goes to the founders to ask, well, what, what should we do? What's the right answer? And sometimes you have a clear gut instinct and that creates a, a culture, a way you do things. And other times you're like, oh man, what did I say the last time someone asked me this question? Like, I'm not, wait, well, I'm not sure. And there's just a lot, there ends up being a lot hinging on these like one-on-one -on -one conversations that happen during such different moments, different contexts. And so much of that is how culture gets set. And at, you know, at those moments, I would have loved to where we're both looking at a piece of paper and we're maybe we're debating about the meaning of the piece of paper. Um, but to me, it was an obvious, you know, restriction on, you know, on, on what the organization could be that so much is, is waiting on, you know, a, a leader and, and the feelings of a leader versus trying to empower everyone with like, this is how we see the world. Um, and so that's, you know, to be, that is still the ultimate and that, that is hard for any organization to get to. I mean, that is, that is not an easy thing by any stretch, but to me that, that should be the goal. So Yancy, something that you just said, uh, which was like, those moments are the moments when culture gets set. It, I wanted to ask you like how you understand the process of like cultural or societal change, like how that works, because I think the benefit of hindsight, we look back on big cultural changes, which is something that you talked about in your book that came out in 2019. And it seems either inevitable that the change happened or it seems like random. Um, but obviously like you wouldn't be, you wouldn't have framed your life the way you framed it. You wouldn't be doing what you're doing with the bench of society. If you didn't believe that people on an individual level could be intentionally shifted and also collectively as a society, we could be intentionally shifted. So yeah. How do you, understand how that process works? Well, I didn't understand it, I would say for the first 32 years of my life. And then with Kickstarter, I felt how, you know, it's all firsthand now, an, an idea that Perry had that we had, we had made together, how that really changed how people saw the world and how people went along with it. And I, I honestly was waiting for someone to come by with a clipboard to like grant us permission and when that didn't happen and the world just changed because of things that we did, I felt really unsettled. I felt really unsettled by that because it just made me realize, oh, oh man, everything is, 
this is everything. This is everything. I, I get it now. I get it. You know, and, and maybe I'd intellectually understood it, but like I could feel it. And, um, but you know, how culture gets set is interesting. I, I just moved uh, the last couple of weeks. And when I was moving, I found this like super ratty box. It looked like it was going to the dump. And I looked at this box and realized, oh, this is the box of all my most important papers. <laughs> And it's like, you know, every love letter, like every news clipping, like all the like most memento-y kind of things are all in this box. And it is this raggedy, broken, broken box. And I kept using it because it was simply the first thing I put stuff in. One day I tossed like a newspaper clipping in there and then I kept doing it. And then when I would get something else, I would like open it up and put it, you know, close it again. And only after this move, when that box literally broke, when we got to the new house, did I change it? And I think for a lot of things in our culture, it's similar, where it's how we first do something is how we keep doing it. Because, you know, maybe people don't want to be the one to make that call. You just sort of, you follow the path that was there. And we tend to follow those paths until a catastrophe happens, until we're forced to change them because we're just, we're not thinking. Um, so I think in many cases, it's like, Maybe we weren't paying attention to how broken down the system was. And so it's, it's collapse does shock us. Or maybe, you know, maybe just someone happens to enter at the right time to say, hey, this thing we've been doing actually makes no sense. And, you know, you get these cultural divides as people become, you know, have to acclimate to that change. But that's where the culture stuff is. You know, it, it's as a, as a CEO, you know, I came to realize to what degree my actions set the culture and, and were emulated. And it creates a maddening level of self-awareness. You know, it's like what, what people must be like <laughs> who are on TV all the time, like Wolf Blitzer or something, where, you know, everything you do will be captured. But it, it creates that sense once you become aware of it. And the challenge is you only become aware of it after probably it's, the culture is 90% set. Um, but yeah, I, I think that they're, they're, these are unthinking things. And it tends to be either catastrophe or someone having a better idea uh, are the only things that will that will spark them to change. So I'm I'm a big fan of culture as a fundamental bedrock of change, but I also recognize the pushback that a lot of people have when one makes that statement or that assertion, and particularly in corporate land and corporate cultures, you know, the pushback is always. You know, someone like Larry Fink can write a brilliant letter about the need for companies large and small to attend to the environment or to attend to the larger community. You can have a movement toward B corporations, right, companies whose, whose charter uh, embraces not just shareholder returns, but a more multi-stakeholder is the current lingo. Not that I'm a big fan of that lingo, but it is what it is. Uh, and then the pushbacks usually, yeah, but... If you're a public company, you have to meet your quarterly bottom line. If you're a private company, a lot of the same demands exist, whether you're being funded uh, by a venture capital firm, whether you're owned by a private family, you name it, right? That, that, that nice words don't change these systemic realities and, in fact, can often be a bit of a, you know, uh, what, what would one call it? Like uh, uh, bento washing. We could, we could create a new term. Right? Word washing. <laughs> I mean, what, what do you say to people who say that? And there are a lot of people who say that. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that, I mean, I think it's fair to say that those things haven't amounted to much and maybe have amounted to a negative impact. If you could say that like, um, you know, every Exxon ad that says whatever, like compared to the amount of pollution, you know, amount of CO2 they're emitting or you know, in a given day, like what is the net, what is the net outcome of that? Um, yeah, and those Exxon ads are great, by yeah. the way. I see them like they feature a scientist totally. who's, you know, totally like, cares and they do the interview and they have like a great immigrant story. And now they're working, you know, to solve the world's energy problems. I'm like, oh, I'm totally, wow, that's great. I'm totally on board. And then you have to step back and realize, okay, there's a lot more going on here than what's being presented in that 30 seconds. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, I feel we're on a trajectory of, increasing consciousness and that that is happening in a corporate level. Um, I even think like what Kickstarter did becoming a PBC, a public benefit corporation uh, in 2014 was, um, or 2015, I think was a 
like felt like a radical step then now, you know, there's a lot of that and, and the bar is being moved further. Um, and when you get into the world of DAOs and things like that, you, you know, you're really looking at very different models, but I think that, you know, my feeling is that we are, um, we are, we are evolving value systems at the moment where we have had a value system pegged to a financial, uh, store of value that has been our sole measurement of progress over the past, you know, 60 years, especially. Um, but I think that COVID gives us a sign of what the world looks like when our dashboard becomes uh, more than one metric, you know, COVID we've had like the economy and unemployment along with infections or deaths. And now we're seeing the same thing happen with uh, CO2. And so I think that what we're going to be looking at is probably only because of disastrous reasons, but I think we might soon be looking at economic growth within the context of, say, uh, CO2 emissions. Uh, and so you're going to start to see decisions live within like bigger universes, where instead of just this belief that a financial growth will do everything, I think we're going to see more limits to that and more pushback on that. I don't think that's going to happen because of businesses like getting woke. I think it will happen because they're forced to. And some of it will happen because some, some companies will show a better way. I mean, that, that is the beauty of competition is that competition, you know, companies trying to earn uh, you know, earn the respect or attention of consumers are going to try to out greenwash each other. And maybe every now and then one of these things will be sincere, you know, and we'll do something. And ultimately we need, I think that kind of competitive spirit probably to generate the best ideas. And so, you know, I'm like, uh, things are so alarming. I'm like, if anyone's picking up a bucket, like I'm let's come on, <laughs> come on board, let's do it. Like it, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work to be done. So Nancy, are, you know, given what you said about, you know, sometimes we need like the box to break or like catastrophe to come hit us over the head to, to make some change. Are you on team? Like COVID is a huge wake up call for us. And on the other side of this, we're going to come out of it into a better world. Cause this is something that, that Zachary talks about a lot where like, I think he's, he's like, I, I don't know, maybe we're going to return back to business as usual. So I'm wondering where, it's, where you are with that. It is a huge wake up call. I mean, what's, what's frustrating is that COVID is like, in terms of uniting the world and increasing collective consciousness and allowing like greater degrees of global cooperation. I mean, COVID is a layup. It's like a gift. It is a gift. And a gift that, you know, humans have screwed up in a way in the sense that like there is, there was an opportunity for great unity around finding a, you know, a vaccine and all these things could have happened, um, but did not. But I think that um, it is a massive wake up call. It is obviously an appetizer for more disasters to come, but the world, but the world, <laughs> but the world had already fundamentally changed and is fundamentally changing for even bigger reasons than COVID. Like the world is changing because of the internet and because we are now networked organisms. That is what is driving change, you know, and the climate is going to force us to embrace that change even more. COVID forced the maturation of that change. But I think that we're fundamentally changing as a species. And I think that's really what's happening. Um, and so I think that there is a, a great social shakeout um, that is happening over the next couple of decades that I, I think has a high likelihood of being violent, you know, I think has a high likelihood of, um, you know, being yeah, quite painful, um, but I think we'll ultimately net out with a very different model of what society is and who people are. And I think that is like the way the world feels more tribal, just as it's become more global, um, is a reflection mm -hmm. of, of these larger changes. So that that is what I think is the real driver. I think COVID is just like, it's just, you know, it's just something else that got thrown into the pot along the way. I mean, I've been you know, on, on Emma's line of what the effects of COVID, you know, one, there's the apocryphal uh, uh, Kissinger to, to Zhao Enlai at the first China-US summit when he asked what uh, he thought about the French Revolution as uh, compared to the Chinese Revolution, Zhao Enlai apparently said it's too soon to tell. Um, turns out that story wasn't necessarily well reported, but it's a great anecdote, even if it's inaccurate. And then there's the George Macaulay, English historian in the 1930s, who once wrote about the revolutions of 1848, that it was the turning point in history at which history failed to turn. And, 
you know, the question around COVID is it is clearly an opportunity for massive systemic change, but it's unclear whether or not that is an opportunity that will in any way be seized, right? And just like the financial crisis 2008-2009 may have laid the seeds inadvertently for a whole series of things from populism to Brexit to the rise of Trump, you know, you name it, 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 it you, you may be able to look back and, and identify those changes. I like your point, Yancey, of, you know, it's all yet another, another ingredient added to a stew that's, that's percolating on the stove as it is and likely to do so irrespective of, of the specific ingredients. Um, I don't know about the violence part. I mean, there's violence endemic to sort of human change and experience. I'm not sure the violence ahead is going to be any different than the violence behind, except to say that it may actually be of, of a lesser intensity, certainly than the 20th century. Yeah, I just, you know, I think that, I mean, I mentioned violence just to say, I mean, I don't, I don't think I, I'm not a naive optimist, right? Like I, if it, it absent climate, absent the climate crisis, sure. Like if you give, if you give our simulation long enough, you know, roles, like, can we get, can all sorts of amazing things happen? I believe that. I believe that also human nature and Moloch will also always show up as well. Um, but I think that, yeah, just, just the change is painful, you know, I mean, ultimately, um, you know, ultimately I think, I think of the world as like a party. And, um, when you enter the party, you're like, as a kid, you're sort of, you're meant to stay off in the corner, you know, like someone looks after you, gets you some snacks, things like that. As you turn in your twenties, you can like dance on the periphery of the dance floor. Uh, and then it's when in like forties and sixties, you get to be in the DJ booth and you get to like run the show. But as human lifespans have gone on as like wealth has changed, like access to the DJ booth has gotten, you know, it's gotten a lot more contentious and people don't want to give up their spots. And there is a, you know, and there is this sort of conflict that's happening over what is this party like, right? It's like America is run by 80 year olds. It's run by 80 year olds, like Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, you know, all these people, like literally they are, are you know, 70 plus. Um, and that is, you know, that is going to break. Um, that is going to change. And, and, you know, every, everything says that people raised by the internet have such a different relationship to the world than people raised by television. And, and that's the changeover that that's happening. I like this, uh, party metaphor. Like we're all maybe now stuck with DJs who are playing Whitney Houston. We want to listen to the Wu-Tang Clan or like something like that. Someone asked me just the other day here in Greece, the Greek, Greek person, they were like, why did you guys elect Joe Biden? Like he's basically a mummy, you know, like it wasn't as a, a perspective about his politics or, you know, his stance or anything, but they were like, isn't that guy half dead? Um, but in any event, yeah, see, I wanted to ask you about, we sort of, you know, we've been talking about moving into the future, creating something else. Um, and I wanted to just go back a little bit and talk about one of the problems that you had defined, um, which is financial maximization that we haven't hit on yet. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that problem for us and how you see it. It's a, it's a very common critique um, these days, but you know, a lot of my, uh, the book, This Could Be Our Future, um, is about this challenge of what I call financial maximization, which is the assumption that the right choice in any decision is whichever outcome makes the most money. And we have allowed that sort of basic litmus test, often unthinking, to guide how we design our society, how we design our families, our organizations, everything. And it is not an irrational choice, and it is often the correct way of thinking about things. But what it's done is it's squeezed out uh, a lot of other valid reasons for making decisions. And it's ultimately you know, put us in a world where we're richer than ever, but increasing social distrust, we have you know, runaway emissions, all these sorts of challenges, because those things have just not been on the dashboard. So you know, to me, this is like a very, um, I, I'm, I empathize, I sympathize with this challenge and sort of the path we've been on to this date, because anyone saying like, well, it should be something different than money. It's, you know, there's always been the challenge of, okay, well, what is it? How do you define it? There's like defining you know, happiness in Bhutan, there's you know, people trying to define well-being. But ultimately these things are like, 
awkward and inconvenient and ultimately they're trying to they're trying to capture morals um you know so it's it's a challenging thing but, but what i think is different now is that in the digital age the cost of measurement is zero you know in the past like counting something was quite painful so counting things that are worth money made a lot of sense but now digitally we can count almost anything and almost anything could be turned into a value and almost anything could be turned into a measurement and i think what we're seeing and what the business world is already doing is you create more refined metrics that identify outcomes you're looking for. And ultimately what's happening is that our value set is expanding. It's no longer just that money is the only dashboard is the, is the only value on the dashboard. Now it's also, you know, loyalty. Maybe there's a trust score, you know, there's an NPS score. Maybe now they're getting into like some CO2 ESG uh, rankings. A lot of these things are debatable and, how good a job they do of measuring what they're doing um, and the effectiveness. But I ultimately think that where we're going to break through this challenge of money being the only value is that there are just going to be new values added to the dashboard that it will compete with. And that financial gains will come in context of these other values. And that this is something that will come to be a, you know, a kind of a, a social revolution, maybe within companies that's not going to come from like people getting woke. It's just going to come from, data science and math and it being able to be demonstrated that these are better outcomes. Uh, so I feel like I feel like we are at a point in history where practically speaking, the kinds of evolutions that I think people have been arguing for for a long time actually can happen and won't be as onerous or as like pie in the sky as they would have been at any other point. It's interesting that you bring up data science. Like I was thinking about financial and acquisition sort of leaking down from business to individuals. And I was thinking about when I was younger and living in New York, uh, I happened to start learning aerial dance. I got decently good at it and I started teaching and um, I started teaching like all the time. I had a job, job didn't pay me that much, separate discussion. So I wanted the money, you know, it made sense. But at the same time, there is this un questioned assumption in the back of my mind that something was worth doing only for money. Like that was the worth that was assigned to it. And uh, it surprised me that you went to data because my mind went to like the things that are important are unable to be measured. So the things that I was losing by like just going to money, 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 and like losing the creative aspect of, of the dance and this, that, and the other thing, like you can't put a number on that. Uh, but maybe I'm like totally going towards the past and you're going towards the future. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I answered that in a systemic way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think people are better at navigating this than organizations are. It's not that it's an easy decision, but like people, we feel, we feel torn by these things. I feel torn by these things to this day of like, you know, is it worth doing something if I'm getting paid or how do I feel about like, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of feelings that are culturally deep in us. And that's where I think like the individual tool of the bento is something that just like puts that in context. Yes, it is important that you have enough money to like pay for your basic cost of living, but that's only important to the degree that, you know, you can also maintain the relationships that are important to you. And, you know, it's teaching you how to find that balance. Um, I think it's like in the organizational context, there's just like a total absence of creative thought about these things. There's a lot of people kind of throwing up their hands and, well, what can you do? You know, we got it. We just got to make the number go up. And just being in those rooms and knowing that if you're going to make a decision that's unpopular, you know, you're going to have to back it up with something. You're going to have to make the case. And, and, if you're, and if you're making your case in a way that's not emotional, that's not romantic, that's not moral, but is about look at this outcome that we've all agreed is important. That's when people change their minds. You know, that's when people change their minds. And so I'm just thinking about like, as people, as individuals, we can't solve climate change. We need bigger forces to do that. You know, how, how are we, how, how are those bigger forces getting a more complete look at the world? The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Lucke is the, the Danish word for happiness. Yes. Uh, last year I wrote about hygge, and, and hygge was about what works well in Denmark in terms of improving quality of life. Now with the new book, I've gone basically on a global treasure hunt, looking for pockets of happiness, what works in France and Japan and Bhutan and, and different countries in terms of driving well-being for people. Um, one of the best predictors of whether people are happy or not yeah. is their relationships. And it's that sense of togetherness, it's that sense of belonging, that sense of community we can see impacts people's happiness. That was happiness researcher Mike Wiking talking with ITV and STVs this morning about the science and importance of happiness. There was an economist named Richard Esterlin who developed this thing called Esterlin's Paradox, that people get significantly happier and more secure when they start from a low income and financial base and reach a higher one. Uh, but that having reached the basic plateau, maybe it's a middle class plateau, increased income beyond a certain point doesn't lead to any notable increase in happiness. It's a debatable paradox and economists have been trying to now say, well, maybe not. And, you know, people actually, there is some correlation between ever rising incomes and, and collective prosperity and, and more security and more happiness. Um, but it play, it speaks to this debate of partly because so many societies judge their success or failure in today's world, not by the size of their army or by the amount of territory, but purely by GDP, right? Purely by how much stuff are we producing and how much stuff divided by people does each individual you know, have per capita. Um, and there too, kind of, you know, that's the, the national problem of like the quarterly earnings one, right? We're, we're only as good as how much we consume and how much we make. And we've known this for years, right? Robert Kennedy had this great speech in 1968, excoriating GDP as saying, you know, it leaves out basically everything that's important, human relationships, Emma's dance, passion, you know, like none of that shows up. It's all invisible. But yet here we are, you right. know. Yeah, here we are. So like throwing shade at it, shaming it hasn't done anything. And I think you have to beat it. I think you have to beat it. I think you have to outperform it. You know, you, you can't deny its utility, right? And so you need to create something that has an equally valid utility. And and I feel like that, I just feel like we're in a moment where that's going to be necessary and, and will be possible. Um, but, you know, there, it's like there, I've done a, a whole long interview series um, around the theme is called Data is Fire. Uh, but just exploring the potential and the dangers of uh, data science and how necessary it is, but also how easy it is to trick ourselves into thinking more than what we know. And people who are really educated in this are like very conservative about the abilities uh, that can be created. Um, but as I just think about how do we, how do we expand our value system beyond purely capital? Um, to me is a, an obviously urgent question and one that like we need to have practical solutions for and not like rhetorical or, and so ultimately that comes down to, I think, decision-making tools that work in the boardroom and will come down to laws that ultimately enforce this. But we, no one knows how to write laws yet because no one even knows how to, what, are, what is the outcome we're trying to create? It's like you put hundred people in a room, you get a hundred answers. Um, so I think that we're in the, you know, we're right in the thick of it at this moment. 
Um, and, and I get excited about, you know, like what, what, what do I think one of the big takeaways will be from the COVID year will be the way that we have learned how to organize online. You know, I look at like the wall street bets, GameStop, um, as an example of, uh, I've called them the past dark forests of the internet, but these like semi-private spaces where people can cooperate and organize and create collective action and manipulate culture and society and shape opinion. And this is like the, the level of sophistication uh, and energy that has gone into like developing these kinds of informal networked organizations over the past two years is extraordinary to where now they've turned into DAOs that are giving grants and millions of dollars to projects. And I think that this might end up being the dominant social structure of the 21st century. These informal fractional groups that are digitally based that without people even knowing who's in them are ultimately shaping a lot of our society and a lot of culture. And I think eventually turning the world more and more towards adopting like internet norms as to how our government works versus say, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson norms. So I, I feel like that just the, this new kind of energy and this ability and the, the Bento Society is a small example of this it, it, and this ability for people to like reorganize around different identities, different values, and then to do things together um, is to me is, is unprecedented. And, and I think we'll be like where we're going to start to spark off into very different timelines than maybe we would have thought, you know, three years ago. I have two thoughts. My first, literally my first thought was, I just want Zachary to respond to that thought. Like, I'm curious about your thoughts, Zachary, about, you know, these like fractional internet groups sort of. I mean, look, I think, I think it's a fascinating uh, way of understanding these as different forms of social organization that have like political, economic, cultural clout as both change agents and organizing principles that aren't governments, that aren't companies, that aren't what we romanticize, particularly in the United States, as these like suburban uh, volunteer societies. You know, they're, they're not the Rotary Club, they're not the bowling league. A la Robert Putnam bowling alone, you know, we're, we're bowling alone, but we're, we're trading together would be the, the GameStop meme. Um, and I think there's a lot to that. Like we, you know, most of the way we understand society is, is through structures that we look at, you know, news is set up to look at governments and look at companies and look at organizations or look at fame and, and potential and people. These other things which, you know, exist in, in the wilds of the web, uh, Aren't, we're not used to looking at them in the light that you've talked about. And I think that's very important, you know, including something we're trying to do with the Progress Network or you're trying to do with Bento, which is, you know, when someone asks you specifically what these things are, it gets kind of fuzzy because the, the language for what they are doesn't quite work given that they don't, they aren't quite what anything else was, you know, Progress Network, so it's a little bit publishing, it's a little bit events, it's a little bit trying to create a virtual community of people who may not even recognize that they're in a virtual community. Um, you know, Bento is, it's a book and it's, 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 a, it's workshops and it's people developing their own, I guess, Bento mantra of how they live their lives. It's a teaching, you know, it's, it's a little bit corporate. It's a little bit HR. It's a little bit new age. It's a little bit, none of the above. Um, and that sui generis reality, I think, is partly why people get so confused about the world, right? Because the, the traditional anchors of definition are becoming. You, you, Emma used the mummy analogy earlier, so they're becoming like the mummy disintegrating into the dusts of time. Um, but I like the I like the idea of these being new organizing principles that carry great weight. Yeah, I, I have a whole like. Um information architecture theory of what these things are that I'm going to save because I'm going to, I'm going to do something else with that later. But you know, speaking of Robert Putnam, he had this, um, he had a book come out last year called the upside, which is like a sort of a sequel to bowling alone. And it tracks like, uh, from 1850 to nine, you know, to 2000, I think, uh, the collectivist versus individualistic attitudes in America. 
and comes up with various metrics to track it and just basically shows it's like an ebbing, an ebb and flow of going back and forth. But one of the things that really stuck out to me is, is the Gilded Age uh, was like one of the ages when this is like 18, 1860s, 1880s, when Americans were like especially individualistic. The robber barons began to happen. There was like increasing inequality. There's this narrative of the regular persons being left behind. And in the wake of that came the civic spirit that peaked between 1880 and 1900 and like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt ended up becoming emblematic of. But during those 20 years was when the Red Cross, the Boy Scouts, like 20 of the most strongest to this day, biggest social organizations in America were all formed within like a 10 year period of one another. When there was this push towards there needs to be a new kind of public commons, there needs to be new ways of organizing. And there was, a, there was an energy that got fired up that created institutions that in a lot of ways shaped the next hundred years of social life. And so I, I feel like we might be in the midst of a similar you know, era now where you know, we kind of reached a depth of a certain way of thinking, a certain modality, a certain paradigm. And, and under, you know, to me, what's so clear about the new energy coming is that it's more collectively oriented than we've been in the past. And I think just the basic function that we are living through the internet is a huge reason why. I kind of like this description of, it's a reimagining of GameStop as the new civic spirit of the internet. I wasn't expecting that to happen on this podcast and uh, I'm, I'm going to be a fan of that. <laughs> We're going to get you your own uh, Reddit group, Emma. I'm ready. I'm ready. So Yancy, we could obviously continue this and I think probably should continue this. It's like a good check-in to see where things go and head. But, you know, the work you're doing uh, by being culture changing, one of the frustrations people sometimes have with ideas and culture is the, the, the Galileo problem, right? He walks out of the Inquisition having renounced the idea that the earth revolves around the sun and he then mutters under his breath, yes, but it does move, but he was unable to prove it in a way that would, would be sufficient. We know culture changes and we know that there are change agents in culture, but it lacks the immediacy of cause and effect that some people desire, you know, when they want to, when they want to have power or when they want to know that they are the change agent that led to this specific change. And I think there's a humbleness or hopefully a humbleness in, in the work you're doing of, you put it out there, you believe that it's possible, but you also allow for the fact that it takes, it's, it's evolutionary, it takes time, it's not an immediate, like I'm going to wake up and everybody's going to be different. <laughs> no, no, that, I mean, that would be, that would be a violent change and we should not wish that, you know, I, 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 I love gradual change. You know, I don't, I don't like changing against my will and any, any, any significant change I might want will be against someone else's will. So these things changing slowly democratically is, is ultimately what's so important. That's what like lets people get on board. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I think that this is a, you know, I mean, I don't know how to not just say cliches of like, you know, this is a very, I think it's a very specific time and a very specific set of experiences we're, we're, we're having right now. And, you know, I, I, you know, I think about the long-term as, and the bento really helps with this is like my actions today, my practical actions today need to contribute to it. You know, the, 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 the lot of future us can't be something I'm getting to one day when there's a moment for it, then it doesn't happen. And that's why like so much of the work of bento is based on helping individual people like find themselves. You know, I host a event every Sunday where I guide people in making their bento for the week ahead because to me, like this being useful to people's daily lives is what allows this to happen. It can't be just like a theory that I'm waiting for people to one day get, you know, it has to be something that just day to day is useful. And in my mind, if you can do that, and if you can connect that day to day utility to a larger outcome, like that is about as good as you can do. And the next step is just to have patience, to have energy, to not give up and, and, and really with Kickstarter, with another project I started, I'm so proud of called the Creative Independent. Um, the, I've really learned like things that are not appreciated on a single day become really meaningful when you do them every day for a long time. And, and sometimes it, it will take two years for people to, you know, maybe fully connect, but it is that 
It's just like holding on to that vision um, and, and continuing to act on it. I think that's what, that's what creates change. That's what creates outcomes. There isn't another way. You can't shortcut this. And the, the beauty is that most of the time it's fun. And only occasionally <laughs> do you freak out and have no idea what you're doing. And then, you know, then you come back to your bento and you're like, all right, now I remember what I'm doing. Let's keep going. Well, I, I'm sold. How about you, Emma? Should we, should we have a progress network bento Sundays? Uh, I was going to ask you earlier in the podcast if we should do a TPN bento, an organizational one. I, that sounds good. <laughs> Yancy's speaking to my Buddhist heart yep. here, though. It's like it's singing. It's having a blast. Yeah. Making it for your organization is like... I, I recommend it. I have one for the Bento Society. Like I reflect on it often as I'm thinking about things like, do, is, does this make sense for me to do or not? You know, and I'm really saying like, is it contributing? Is it fulfilling what I'm saying here? And if it's not, no matter how cool it is, it's like, you know what? There's, there's only so much energy in the world. I gotta, I gotta use it for what's right. All right, well, definitely to be continued. Um, and Yancey, thank you for your time and your wisdom and your thoughts and your work. We will keep at it. Yeah, great hang. Great hang. I look forward to next time. So here's the point in the podcast where we ruminate about whether or not we like the conversation that we just had. <laughs> that puts a real fine of a point on it, Zachary. <laughs> <laughs> this is the point in the podcast, like that moment when you've had a dinner party that you've co-hosted with someone and you've just seeing the last guest out the door and you sit down and you're like, okay, who do we like? What happened that was interesting? What didn't we like? Are we going to invite them back? Now we're not going to do that with Yancey. I'm just saying this is the point in the podcast at which we do something similar. At which we gossip about the people that were just kind enough to be on our podcast. Let's do exactly. it. Exactly. So since you brought up the dinner party metaphor, something that really stuck with me was that disaster appetizer metaphor or visual image which was simultaneously frightening to me and like kind of cute like i'm like oh i could take it as an appetizer like okay yeah it's gonna build my appetite for the main course of the painful change that's coming up yeah i wonder it's an interesting question about uh you know how much pain we have ahead of us relative to how much pain we have behind us and that may sound like a dissonant note in a podcast called What Could Go Right, but as people are gleaning, the, the point of asking the question what could go right is that we don't ask it enough, right? It's not that everything is going to go right. It's that we're so focused on what could go wrong that we miss in that obsession what could actually go well. But what could actually go well can also entail struggle and difficulty. It's not an immediate here's your ice cream, enjoy your dessert. It's it's an evolutionary process. Yancey is really interesting in that, right? He, he I loved his idea of you want gradual change uh, because non-gradual change is often violent change. It's not usually, wow, I won the lottery or the hand of something came down and magically changed your life for the better instantaneously. Which is funny because before we talked about this, like, I, I don't know, I feel like people kind of do want that. Like, I, 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 w I am waiting still for the magic wand to be waved and like COVID to be over and everything to be peachy keen and the financial system to be great. And we're all living in a climate resilient, beautiful future. But I take I take both your points. They're 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 well taken. Wouldn't that be nice if that were the case? That's like the three the, the three wishes with the genie. I, I all wish for three more wishes. Well, it's it's funny because you know you bring up you know, like winning the lottery, and actually a lot of people's lives get destroyed after they win the lottery, right? Like they I was adapt. gonna say that. Ah, look at us. <laughs> Lotteries, not so good when that change happens. You know, in all those movies where someone is given what they think exactly they want, and it doesn't turn out so well. So the idea of you have to earn your change. Right? You have to earn your, your better future by doing the work to create it rather than sitting around hoping that it will just either collectively magically happen because we elect the right president or we support the right dictator or somebody, you know, come, comes with the magic wand. Ain't going to happen. It's going to be about this uh, doing the work, you know, as you used to look at a lot in Buddhist terminology, right? You, chop wood and carry water and what happens when you've been enlightened you chop wood and carry water uh doing the work is an ally that weird sort of like 
modern psychological thing of do the work you got to do the work on yourself which is like starting to grate on me a little bit but i all right we're ready to do the work on a collective level and an individual level and thankfully we have like a hundred people at the progress network all of whom are doing their work yes maybe not all of them are doing their bento work but they're all doing their work and yancy is absolutely a part of that mix so until next time i guess we'll wrap up this conversation and get going on our quadrants and our bentos and our data science and and making the world a better place until the next podcast a next time for us will be in a few months as we prepare for season two and in the meantime be sure to keep following the podcast as we have a handful of bonus episodes we're releasing in between seasons to help keep asking the question what could go right To find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with the Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Varvalukas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator, executive produced by Jeff Ombro and the Podglomerate. Thanks so much for listening.